Hello there. Welcome to episode 136 of 1% Better. And we are talking about burlesque today. Not just the typical burlesque you might think of, but burlesque with men. And that will also dive into the career of the person behind this idea of burlesque with men, Gillian Schmidt. She is a lady from living in Hollywood, living in LA, working in the area of burlesque for a number of years, also an actress and a dancer and a choreographer and an author, I guess, as well. She put a book out. So I definitely wasn't expecting to talk about burlesque on the show at all, ever, but we do go into different areas. And this was a recommendation from somebody I know on Twitter that uh, was able to connect Julian and myself. And it actually came out really well. I really learned something from it. And Gillian is a brilliant talker, a great guest to have on. And I would recommend you check out the show notes and check out her own burlesque work and all the stuff she does in this space. So check that out straight after my other few little bits of rambles. Coming into, where are we now, middle of November. Season four will come in the new year. So season three, which we're in now, will continue and hopefully wrap up around the end of the year start of january i'm getting the website redone and uh, making it a bit more focused on just podcasts and one minute monday videos and blogs uh, so that'll look a bit more modern in the new year and i am continuing to look for really interesting people experts in their field that can share insights from that area that can help people get one percent better I'm recording an episode tonight as I record this. Uh, I'm recording an episode tonight with Barry Schwartz, who is the author of The Paradox of Choice. And I've been posting about this for a while. Read the book just last month or so. And wow, uh, brilliant read. And this guy is not to put any guest above anyone else, but he has a huge, had had a huge impact with this book uh, when it came out in 2004 and it's revised version, but tens of millions of views on his TED talk and has had subsequent work that he's published as well. And he's a psychologist. So looking forward to asking him questions and that'll be out hopefully next week or the one after. So that's good. That's the the benchmark I'm looking forward to talking to other people of similar ilks over the next number of months in all different areas. So if you have a recommendation for a guest, as always, drop me a note, ping me on LinkedIn or join our Slack group, which uh, there's a link to on the front page of the website. Uh, and as always, join the newsletter, of course, and subscribe to the podcast. Uh, that's the one thing that helps uh, with that very important ranking on these um, podcast charts. Uh, yeah, no, no, it is important because uh, it helps others listen in when they see it. But if you don't subscribe, if you don't give stars, if you don't leave a review, it probably won't get into those ears. So yeah, it's all about you guys helping me and I'm trying to help you with the actual content and talking of which, let's get on to the content, uh, talking about burlesque and so much more with Gillian Schmidt. Gillian, take it away and have a great day, weekend, night, whenever it is you listen to this show. Thanks so much and good luck. Welcome to another edition of the 1% Better Podcast with your host, Rob O'Donoghue. Hey folks, welcome to 1% Better, another 
week, another episode, and another guest from the West Coast from Hollywood. The last time I said my guest is from Hollywood, it was Rosanna Arquette. So Gillian Schmitz, Schmitz, was it Schmitz or Schmitz? How would I pronounce Schmitz. that? Schmitz. Yeah, you got it. I Schmitz. got it right. Perfect time. Okay, brilliant. So Gillian, you know, Rosanna Arquette um, and yourself kind of in the same sentence. Is that is that a good good thing? I will take it. Um, I was about to say, if I'm going to follow, that was your last guest from the West, which I like that, the guest from the West. Mm. Um, I, I, uh, I love being in that category. I don't know if I feel like I can claim that seat, but I'll take it. <laughs> well, look, delighted to have you on to this podcast and great to be talking to you. Um, it's actually just on a on a kind of a weather note. I was just outside about two minutes ago, and it's freezing cold. I think I felt snow coming down, so I presume it's a little bit better there at noon on a on a Wednesday. Listen, if you need fire, we can send some over. We have an abundance of flames yeah. here, smoky air, lots of campfire smells. <laughs> it uh, definitely yeah. looks pretty hardcore on the on the news of of late that I've seen. It does. They definitely going to show the worst aspects, and and I'm not going to downplay our situation. It's definitely uh, intense, but uh, we're doing all right. We're we're getting through it. I say that you know without taking into account the people who are uh, really struggling with their with their losses with it. But um, the firefighters doing a great job, and and you know it's L.A. and this is fire season and right. climate and etc. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, stay safe. Hopefully, we'll get through the next hour or so anyway, for sure. Um, so, Gillian, when I actually Googled you, uh, and thanks to Anne for connecting us uh, for this episode, um, one of the first searches or that came up was an article in LA Magazine about a, an all-male burlesque show that you're putting on. So, all-male and burlesque, probably kind of a unique few words together there. Would that, that be true? <laughs> Maybe talk to me a bit about what's going on there. Yeah, it's something I've, uh, my latest project that I'm de- um, doing or that I've created is an all-male uh, burlesque show. Oftentimes they're called reviews, uh, and that kind of gives the idea of kind of like a strip tease. And I definitely want to be clear, it's a very like sexy all-male show, but I got to say it's definitely more in the highlighting of professional dancers' abilities and um sexy from the female point of view. Uh, I'm trying to stay away from a lot of uh, extra thrusting, a lot. Of, I'm trying to stay away from too many body rolls. I'm trying to stay away from uh, a stereotypical male stripper type show and make it much more classy, much more tasteful, um, and more of like an all-male dance show. So that is what I've been working on currently. Mm. And I, I did read as well, it's in response to this not to this, but to the kind of women's movement, the Me Too, and everything mixed up in that. Would would that be fair to say, or is there more behind it? Yeah, no, it's fair to say that my contribution to the women's movement right now is hiring men, <laughs> which is not... We do, I don't know if Rosanna Arquette would be too happy with that, actually. Uh... I know, right? It, it sounds a little off but uh, when I put it that way, but really what I wanted to do was create something for women that is already 
um, over, in my opinion, the market is oversaturated uh, with female burlesque shows in LA at least. Um, and, and I have reaped the benefits of that. That's what I've done the last, you know, 15 years is a ton of burlesque work. I love that type of work. And it has, you know, really expanded all over Los Angeles. There's a ton of burlesque shows. Some you buy tickets for, some there's no cover and it, it accompanies the environment of the bar that you're going to. And it is just it's become a word that people know and are very comfortable with under the idea of that it's a female doing this thing. So when you talk about now what is available on the opposite side to women. So if that, if women, you know, doing this sexy burlesque stuff is the norm, that's what it is. And, and it would most likely be catered towards men, although women enjoy watching it, they can appreciate it. But as something that people are looking at from a sensual side, from, you know, a sexy side, you know, just because women can appreciate it doesn't mean it was made then for them, right? So what is the opposite of that for women? If, you know, men are going to go see women do burlesque dancing, what are women going to go see and what is available for them? Or do they have to just settle for what it is, the status quo? And in that that's what I wanted to create. There's not a lot of all male reviews, male, even strip shows, whatever you want to call them. There, there isn't even a variety available in Los Angeles. There might be a male strip club that I don't even know about that might be kind of a seedy kind of like very um, stereotypical version of what that might be. And then there's like another show that might be a, a level up from that that I've seen a couple years ago, but nothing that to me satiated or hit the same, um, artistic value and uh, attention to detail and aesthetic um, quality that a lot of the female shows right now have in Los Angeles. So I wanted to create something for women, you know, by a woman, for women, by women, um, that they would appreciate. Mm -hmm. You mentioned artistic value and attention to detail. They're probably very important, I would imagine. And it, it sounds like you know, from from saying that you've honed in on those. When you're putting the show together, what are the kind of other, I suppose, values or, or components of it that you feel are essential? So for me, and uh, I've had some women, like I get a lot of feedback from the ladies and because we've done three shows, we're going to do our fourth one coming up December 5th. And I get a lot of feedback from the ladies. Most of it is like, oh my God, I love this show. I love this show. There's nothing like it. Mm. And then there's a few, a bit of, of feedback that I get like, they need to be more naked. It's like this very aggressive, like they need to be naked, make them shake it. You know? And I, I hear that. To I value how, how it. How naked would one get in, in this sort of show? Well, this is the thing. My show goes down to like underpants, not, not a G string, not a banana havoc, but like fun, bright, boy, like, um, like, uh, what are they called? Boxer briefs. Right. Um, and that's a, and you know, like, so that's as, as far down as they get. Now I know that if I got them down to a G string or a banana hammock or you know, put their hand over their crop, you know, like really went there, I'm sure there's a way to do it that it could still be tasteful. However, what I want to elicit from the audience is actual true desire. What I don't want to elicit from the audience is something that is uncomfortable and just makes people scream because it's 
gratuitous or, you know, over the top or embarrassing. There's a lot of times when you go and see these male shows that women are screaming and now they're screaming for a bunch of reasons. In my opinion, they're screaming because they're not allowed to objectify men the same way men are allowed to objectify women on a daily basis. So it's overkill, right? They don't have the opportunity to, so they're going to take it. They're also screaming because a lot of times the stuff is just ridiculous. Men are doing things that are, you know, funny, you know, or they're, they're, they're shaking their, you know, they're shaking it and they're like, they're doing things that just aren't necessarily desirable. They're just funny or, you know, they elicit a response, but it's not to me necessarily one of desire. So my show is, I want to capture female desire, not necessarily um, humiliation of men. If that makes sense, definitely makes sense, and I think I'm just. I don't to... know if I answered your question, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, like definitely in in a part, I suppose when you're when you're putting the show together, what you mentioned the word I think sensual, and maybe it's kind of going more into what is burlesque. I suppose what are the components of burlesque? I'm from Ireland. I've heard of Dita Von Teese probably. A, that's probably as much about a burlesque, and maybe there was a movie called Burlesque. I think, but um, maybe you should explain what burlesque is and what what you suppose the components and just give us a bit more of a 101 on that yeah okay so burlesque the the root word or the first part of the word burlesque is burl and that actually is supposed to translate to a joke um Hmm. and so uh a lot of the burlesque stuff and vaudevillian stuff when it first started um was a joke Everything was kind of a joke to be made fun of. A lot of the bump and grinding that you see women do in the 40s and 50s, and they called it the bump and grind, the shaking of the breasts, the bumping and the grinding of the hips, wasn't actually, from my understanding, supposed to be attractive in the beginning. What it was was to make fun of the female body so that it would be easily digestible for audiences to take, right? If you're going to show nudity, you almost have to make a joke about it. Um, and so, and there was a lot of different regulations and how they were allowed to do this. Some clubs, they weren't allowed to take off clothes on stage. They could only do it in the wing. So you would see footage of women come out, you know, show up item of clothing, come off into the wing and then come back out without it on instead of absolutely being able to take it off and lay it on the stage. So there's a lot of like very interesting cultures and variations of how that was able to be done in a more conservative environment than even now. Um, to me with burlesque, it, there has to be some kind of a story. There has to be some kind of a reveal. There has to be some kind of a transformation. And there can be some kind of a joke. It can be funny or cute. Um, and so that is all present in uh, my show and in a lot of the burlesque that I do. I like seeing a transformation. I like there to be a reveal. I think it's it's nice to have a humor with it. I think you know, humor can be a very tricky thing. Is it humor? Is it cute? Is it endearing? You know, what, what is that humor or is it just to make fun of? And my problem with a lot of the male strip shows is that these guys are doing things that elicit a response that to me isn't even necessarily humorous. It's just uncomfortable. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's not their fault. I think men don't always know what women find attractive. And I think they're trying I think they're trying hard to do it. And when they hear responses, they think that's it. But it may not exactly be it. It may be a byproduct of women not being able to express themselves that way. It might be just being severely uncomfortable in the situation because it's just not common. It's hard to say. 
So with the burlesque stuff, like with my show, there's a lot of attention to costume details. There's a lot of attention how things are done. Um, there's certain cast members that I'm like, you're not allowed to do more than one hip thrust in this show <laughs> because that particular performer goes nuts, you know, and it's too much. Um, and then there's other performers in the show that I'm like, you can hip roll your whole day, like do it the whole time. Everybody loves it. It just depends on the artist. It depends on where it's coming from as the artist and how the audience is taking it on. The songs are very specific. Um, everything the choreography has to look right with them. And, you know, being a female, what I do on my body doesn't always look the same as what a man will do on his body. So there's been a lot of workshop in that to make sure that everything looks right on them, you know. So uh, I think like if that answers the question as far as like burlesque and a little bit of that history, um, it's become a common term. OK. And just wondering, does it does a burlesque show tell a story is there like a story wrapped up in it i think that this is up to interpretation so burlesque has become a very wide variety of acts and things under this umbrella of cabaret and burlesque mm -hmm. and i think that shows can tell a through line story and i think each number can tell a through line story um and i think there can be an overall vibe or idea you know so there could be a really nice through line throughout an entire show and tell a story or each individual act could tell its own story. I would say for my show, it's more almost each individual act. Okay. And, and is it mixed as well? Is it men and women in, in your show or is it just men? It's just men. Okay. And is there such a thing as a mixed show then? Yes. Um, so there's, yes, of course there is. I don't, I, I don't know if I, can think of one right now that's like equally male, female as a burlesque show. Um, I think there's been a few, I don't know if they're in circulation right now, but there's a few that have been doing that. Um, but then again, I don't know if then it truly quali qualifies as a burlesque um, show. A lot of times burlesque is more of a solo um, activity like a soloist doing their thing. I'm not saying that a group number can't be burlesque because it obviously can. Um, but I would say a lot of times what happens when male and females join as one cast, it becomes like a dance show versus more specific to uh, what I would consider more burlesque or it becomes like a cabaret show, um, okay. if that makes sense. Sure. How did you get into the world of burlesque? I started doing burlesque. Um, I, I want to say my first burlesque show was probably in 2003. I was working or I was trying to work as a professional dancer. I was green as hell. I don't know if that's a term like here we say like you're green if you don't have any experience. Yeah, yeah. A, no, we okay. would say that here as well for sure. Okay, cool. So I was very green. Like I didn't have a lot of experience. I was going to auditions and just getting cut and getting cut and getting cut and getting cut. And I, at the time, was going to the Pussycat Dolls audition mm. uh, for when, okay, so the Pussycat Dolls started as a cabaret act, a burlesque slash cabaret act in the Viper Room, and they were bringing in celebrities. It was a small little, like, cabaret troupe. And then they started to become this big, like, singing, recording group. And it was when they were doing that expansion, that audition, that was an audition I was going to, to be considered for this thing. And there was, you know, a bajillion people there, and it was at the giant old Millennium Dome. And I was there, and of course, I got cut right away. And as I was going to get my stuff, this guy came up to me, 
and his name is Carrie Esaias, and he runs the uh, Choreographer's Carnival in Los Angeles, which has been running for almost 20 years, and it's a, it's a place once a month for dancers to submit or choreographers to submit pieces and put them up for the community. And um, he re- he's been successfully running this, and he came up to me. He's like, hey, I'm Carney, uh, Carrie. I, I run the carnival. You know, you were really great. Like, are, are you going to stay for the next, you know, cut? And I was like, no, I got cut. And he was like, I can't believe you got cut. Like, you know, why don't you come dance for, for my group for carnival? And so I did because I was like, well, I, I'm not doing anything else, and <laughs> nobody else wants to pay me. So <laughs> I'll do this, of course. Mm-hmm. I'm looking for opportunities to be seen. And it wasn't long after that he started a burlesque, uh, I don't want to say the word troupe, because it's not, it was a burlesque group. I don't like the word troupe. I don't know if it, it very much, I just don't like it. Um, so he, did, he started a burlesque show, a weekly show at the Highlands Nightclub every Friday night, and it was a burlesque show called Ladies in Lace. We all did a bunch of group numbers, and then we each had a solo that we had to freestyle, essentially. It was our solo to do, however we wanted to do it. And in his belief, true burlesque artists freestyled because they were that good at it. And he came from a street uh, street dance background, so he understood how valuable it was for dancers to be able to do choreography, but also to be able to freestyle, tell a story, and do that on their own. And I did that every Friday. I did this show. My solo song was Boots Were Made for Walk-In by Nancy Sinatra, and I got out there and I did God Knows What every Friday. I, I don't, I really, I think I was doing ponies, which is like a weird little, it's a 60s step, but I didn't know what I was doing. I wasn't comfortable freestyling. I definitely wasn't comfortable telling a story. <laughs> I definitely, I don't even think I was smiling. I thought at the time I was smiling, but like, I look back, that was where not smiles. <laughs> um, sometimes what you feel inside doesn't come out. <laughs> like, And I just like, I can't believe anybody really saw anything in me, but he did and he kept putting me on and that experience over time and space was enough to give me an opportunity to really develop myself as an artist. And so having that outlet for quite a few years put me in a category of people knowing that I did that thing. I do this thing. I do this burlesque thing. And I'm able to freestyle and do this thing. And it became almost like a special skill. And so people would hit you up to do, oh, I have a party. Can you come do this thing? Oh, my friend's doing this thing. Can you come? Hey, you know, can you show up this night and just do this thing? And um, uh, quite a few years after that, I started marketing myself more towards this type of work because I really enjoyed it. In 2010 or 2009, I met um, Mark Houston at a show that I was doing, who is uh, Mark and Johnny Houston, our two brothers that own a ton of bars in the Los Angeles area now. At that point in time, they were looking to open their first really big bar. They had a couple bars that had already opened and done okay, but they were set to open their big bar, La Descarga, which has done really, really well. It's a Cuban rum bar that has entertainment. And um, he had asked me to come basically be a sub dancer there, you know, come dance and be available if other people weren't available. And I did that for about a year, and then they opened another bar called Harvard and Stone, and they asked me if I would come dance at that place, which was like a rock and roll, Rosie the Riveter, part aerial, part dance, burlesque show. And I've been there for the last um, eight or nine years. But all of those gigs and their opportunities has kept my career of burlesque stuff really consistent. Um, so that's when I started, back way back then. Oh, and it's, it's kept going since... Throughout your career, as, as I've done the research and looked through your resume, you've you've done a lot of different 
roles i suppose you've you've worked in in film as well you've done some videos anything stand out during that career like and again maybe another follow-on question is it's a tough industry to be in how do you keep yourself motivated focused and, and driven around the the world in hollywood there it is definitely a tough industry especially if you don't have people in the industry i didn't i didn't I didn't come from Hollywood. I, I moved to Los Angeles with knowing no one here when I was 18. Where are you originally uh, from, Julian? Uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Okay. Right. And I, so I don't have any relatives in this industry. Mm. I didn't know anybody. I came out here, you know, like young and dumb and <laughs> like super naive. I make jokes that I was just naive enough to move here because if I had waited a couple of years, I probably would have had some sense and not done it. Um, but <laughs> Uh, you know, it, it's a tough, tough industry. Um, it's one that is like a six month industry. Every six months, there's a new crop of people willing to do less, uh, or more for less. And, um, you know, you're kind of as good as your last job and then your last job, meaning what industry job you did. And even if people don't say that, that is kind of the general feeling of it. And it's a lot about who, you know, it's a lot about, you know, like, it's, it's, it is rough. And I have had a ton of opportunities in the industry. Um, and part of that is, you know, my hard work and, and, you know, my training, but a lot of it is also getting to know people and my relationships and creating friendships, obviously. Um, the one thing, you know, like that I'm most grateful for is this burlesque type of work, because it really has allowed me to be creative throughout my career, regardless of if the industry honored me or not. So this, the industry to me will, you know, if you can get, I'll use your term, if you can get 1% of your art to shine in the industry, you've won. Because most of the time there is no room for it. It is to tell whatever story they want to tell, to to teach whatever actor needs to learn a step for the scene. It, it, the art is the last bit of what actually gets done for industry. So if you can get even a little bit of your art in, you win. But it's not enough for an artist or a creative type to really sustain themselves um, creatively. So I've had this backbone of burlesque stuff to really do my thing. And if I didn't have it, man, like this... I would have quit a long time ago. I just would have quit because the industry breaks your heart a million times over. It really does. And so you have to have those things. You have to have like that background or, or another someplace to be able to do your actual art and your creativity. Hmm. Yeah, that, that's so it's your niche and, and you've, you've kind of developed that and that, that that's, you know, your fallback in, in lots of ways. That, the question around quitting was something I did want to ask. You said, you you know, if you didn't have it, you would have numerous times when you were maybe faced with that, that question, even with that, what, what, what was it that kind of kept you moving forward, focused and, and wanting to continue on? I mean, it's, it's hard to say. I have a joke amongst some of my peers and friends is like that we quit every day. Almost like we're, we're always on the verge of quitting or we're going through a, an episode of quitting. You know, it's like, and you just, I, I don't know what quite what the answer is. Like grace of God. Like, I don't know. Like for me, what usually saves me is something creative, like an idea for something I want to do or my next, you know, like, uh, idea of a show that I want to put on. So even if I'm feeling like I want to quit in my current situation or, you know, like there's, there's a next 
step that I'm working towards to kind of get me through it. I don't know if all artists feel that way, if they just constantly want to quit um, or if that's just a very unique brand of me. <laughs> but um, I, I don't know. Maybe some people will resonate with that. And if not, you know, uh, okay. <laughs> and it's okay as well, I guess. I've I've talked to a couple of comedians actually in the Hollywood area a, a while back as well. And um, they they certainly say, say similar, you know, self-doubt and how you push through and throw yourself into your work and, and you know, work and focus on the next project. So I think there's definite patterns, uh, not just in the entertainment world, but in, in every part of, of life or every profession. One one question that might might be useful or beneficial here is you did mention when we were talking offline or, or through email that you had a knee injury in 2016. And, and I would imagine that was challenging not only because it was an injury but it would have prevented you from doing the burlesque from dancing so you were I suppose that's taken away from you how did you deal with that um interested to hear about that um yeah that was um a very life-changing event so having an injury was always one of the biggest fears Mm. I've ever had with with having a career and it was also something that people love to like scare me with when I was very defiant in wanting this career. Um, Oh, what if you get injured? You're going to get in. You're not going to dance forever. Your body. Ah, you know, like there's Mm. so much fear about it that I carried from other people. And then also obviously my own of like, Oh my God, how would I make my living? And, you know, there's so much underlying fear of like, anytime something happens, it's, it's, it's always like goes to the absolute death. Like, Oh my God, I'm not going to pay rent. I'm going to die. You know? And it's like, okay, there's so many steps between that and actual death. But you know, that's where my brain goes. (laughs) And so it was always like this constant underlying fear of like my body having an injury. And in uh, 2016, I was at an audition and that moment came, I really fucked up my knee. And I didn't know it at the time, like I knew something went wrong. But I was like, Oh, okay, this is weird. And because I live at that point, who I was, what I was, I was you know, bigger than everything. I I was more stubborn than everything. I was not going to succumb. And I was like, whatever. I went to work that night. I danced the next day, you know, things felt weird, but I just kept, kept doing it. And I kept dancing. And what had happened was in that audition, I had torn my ACL and, um, it's not an injury. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's not an injury that causes a ton of pain, but what it causes is significant instability. Mm. And, uh, so I continued to dance. I was in such denial of like, uh, uh, the severity of the injury that I just kept dancing and it slipped a couple of weeks later, it slipped again and it was incredibly painful and scary. And every time it did slip, you did have some muscle discomfort for quite a few days afterwards. Um, but I would come, you know, it would get better. And then I would, I kept dancing and I did that from, I think I tore it in June. Um, yeah, June of 2016, I got an MRI in around July 4th and it came back that, yeah, you tore your ACL. Like you're, you're like, you need surgery. And I was just not having it. I was like, well, I'm sure there's got to be another way and I can heal myself. And like, just really, really in denial. Yeah. And, um, I was like, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be a coper. I've read online. Someone can cope. Blah, blah, blah. I went to a second opinion, a doctor that did stem cell stuff. He gave me a second read out of pocket. I paid. He was like, look, you know, you need surgery. Like he wasn't even sugarcoating it. He was straight up like, 
yeah, the stem cell stuff, we're, we're doing great, but not for this injury. You're going to waste your money. And uh, I was thankful for him, but at the time I was pissed. And I still wasn't set on doing surgery. I kept dancing, kept dancing. December 2016, it slipped, and I tore my meniscus and couldn't walk for two weeks. And, and that's what happens when you have an unstable knee. You are at risk for secondary injuries. And that's what happened. And of course, I still finished my job that night. I don't know how the pain was excruciating. And I had to cancel work for two weeks after I could barely walk. I was really scared. Um, and I kind of made a made a deal with God or whatever deity, whatever dance fairy was listening. And I was like, all right, I'm on my knees, literally, <laughs> I will get this surgery but let me walk so I can finish out my contract. I was, I was contracted to go on a tour, which I could, I could adjust whatever I needed to do. I was a soloist with this artist. Mm. So I could, I had a lot of control over what I did, what I wore, et cetera. And I was like, get me walking again. Let me finish this tour event free and I will get the surgery. And two weeks later I could walk. I finished out my contract. I finished out the work. It was it made it able so that I could bank this money so that I could wow. essentially have this surgery and be off of work for six months. Wow. Um, because that was that's that's the time. That's six months you can't dance, but you're doing like PT. Then after the six months you can go back to work. But it's like it took me a full two years post surgery, post six months. Like when I it took me two years from the point of coming back to work to be back to what I would say was pre-surgery strength. Yeah, that's crazy. So that was, I didn't fully answer your question. That was that whole thing. Mm -hmm. But basically what that made me do was it made me have to stop. And it seems that, I don't know if you guys have these, sometimes you see these machines at um, casinos and stuff. You put the token in and it, it, it lands on top of a bunch of other tokens. And yeah. then there's like, bar that pushes them yeah, yeah, and you're yeah. trying to get them to all and you're like oh there's so many they're about to drop like just one more and i am that token that has to literally get pushed off the side to change my life like other people might be like air hockey they're just like pinging off of different things like oh life gave me that i'll do this like i literally have to be shoved off multiple times off the cliff to change and what it what that injury made me do was it made me address um, my unhealthy lifestyle, it made me address an eating disorder I've had my whole life, undiagnosed, untreated. It awakened uh, depression. I had to basically accept that I, not only was I in a depressive state when I came back after the injury, but also that I've had depression my whole life untreated. <laughs> and it was like really a huge awakening. So I say like when I had written you, it was the best it was the worst, best thing. And I will say worst first because it fucking sucked. Like people like you get on the other side and people are like, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. It was the worst, best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. And, and like sometimes, as you said, that's those pivotal moments can be the catalyst for change that you might need unknowns to yourself. Right. So a turning point, what, what, what were the approaches you put in place or how you kind of unpacked things and then start to build things up again to to get better I guess essentially to to improve what 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 stood out did you you know go down the meditation route or just interested to see what um what you use to 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 improve 
Um, I suck at meditation and I don't get it. And I've tried so many different ways and shapes and forms and I don't, I'm still looking for it, but the ways that I unpacked it was, um, was really, uh, taking a look and seeing how miserable I was really being honest with the fact that I felt like I wanted to crawl out of my own skin. And, um, I didn't feel like I had an option but to reach out for help. And I'm not one of those people. That was another gift. And I say gift with a hard T. Um, A gift of the knee injury was having to ask people for help, which I am so happy to help everybody else, right? Mm -hmm. When it comes to me needing help, that's like something I just don't do. And uh, that had to change with the knee injury. And it had to change when I went back to work and everyone's like, you're back, you're back. And I kept saying, I don't feel back. I feel different. I feel weird. I don't know why I'm not happy. Everything's better now. Why am I not happy? Um, Why do I feel weird? Why don't I feel right? And um, I got professional help. I still see professional help. I went into fellowship programs, 12-step programs. I found a lot of outreach there, a lot of kinship, a lot of camaraderie there. It's a really structured type of group therapy. I did group therapy. That was not so great. Um, And just keep doing that kind of work, which you know, it's very trendy nowadays to like, you know, work on yourself. Everyone's a life coach. Everyone's doing these things. And it's really great. But it's like, holy shit, like I can't even get my shit together myself. How would I ever help anybody else? Because to work on yourself on that kind of a level, at least for me, maybe because I'm a mess, like it really like it's a full time job. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, no, absolutely. And the work you have to do on yourself before you can really kind of connect and help with other people is for sure is is difficult. Yeah. Um, Is is there stuff you do every day now to to kind of keep that momentum going that, you know, if talk to lots of people, I do it myself. If I don't, if I don't do a bit of meditation, if I don't read every day or if I don't do some exercise three or four times a week, I slip back and, you know, you go into darker places. What do you kind of do to just kind of keep things moving forward? It's always a little different for me. I'm always kind of trying to figure out and gauge where I'm at. You know, some days you wake up and, and things feel pretty good and you're like, all right, cool. This today's going to be an easy day. And sometimes you wake up and you're just like, ugh, like what's going on. And those are the days that I probably need to go to a meeting or do some outreach calls or try to get outside of myself or, you know, talk myself into a better situation, really isolate whatever the issue is and like whatever kind of talk through that needs to be. I can't, I cannot afford anymore to be unconscious about how I feel, if that makes sense, you know? Um, But yeah, it's definitely like people need a practice. I, I mean, maybe not everyone does, but a lot of people do like, and that, you know, a lot of people that's like ever, uh, evolving and some people are like really like if I don't do this I don't see this result um I guess I would say I'm I'm much more like ambiguous with how that all lays out but maybe I'll I'll figure out something in the future that's a little more like you don't need structure it doesn't have to have too much structure either if there's a variety of uh, outlets that's good and I would imagine the dancing is is a great release is it to kind of get you out of yourself sometimes for sure I find that like anger anxiety those emotions especially benefit or fear fear anxiety anger those 
emotions benefit from physical activity. Um, if I'm highly anxious, if I literally rip out a couple pull-ups, rip off a couple push-ups, it almost matches your body to what your emotions are feeling. Um, if you think about it, like even biologically, like if we were being chased by a tiger, our adrenaline would, would spike kind of like it, yeah. it does if you are having anxiety, your heart would be pumping all those things and your body would exert energy, right? To run, to fight, to mm -hmm. do something. In our modern day life, we don't actually exert that type of energy when we have those emotions, right? It's not super cool to like, you know, all of a sudden start running around your office if your boss just like, you know, went in on your TPS reports or whatever, you know, like mm -hmm. why you didn't do it. So it's like, then we eat that energy. we just like eat it and it eats us. So like, Yes, dancing, physical activity for those emotions work really great. I also teach and mentor a lot, which is super helpful in getting me out of my own head, out of my own, you know, obsessions. Mm -hmm. You wrote a book or, or put together a book when you were recovering as well. Maybe talk to me a bit about that. I did. So one of the worst, best things to come out of this thing was this recovery coloring book. And I, when I was, you know, laid up with my knee, a friend had given me a coloring book to do, you know, as an activity. And I was kind of flipping through it and it was just kind of like, ah, oh, this is nice, but like, it'd be really nice if I had something that had, you know, this type of design and had, you know, like a recovery phrase that was kind of, you know, could help me through some of this situation. And so I was like, well, it's a perfect opportunity to create something since I'm not doing anything. And I did work on that a lot and published it this past January. So coming up on a year, um, and it's called color your recovery. And it's just based on slogans. I heard, you know, in and out of the rooms, you know, going to PT, you know, going to meetings, you know, just different things that people were struggling with, with different slogans and some designs, and yeah, so that definitely would not have happened had I not had the worst, best thing happen. <laughs> no, it's interesting that, uh, as you said, you throw yourself into projects and that sounds like a good one and something tangible at the end of it for sure as well, which is always always good to show for uh, that, that effort. Very cool. So maybe just to wrap up a few kind of rapid fire ones, if that's cool, Gillian. Sure. So I like to kind of ask my guests sometimes just kind of get an insight on in how they, they run their day and, and certain things that they do from day to day. Influencers, who do you have as an influencer around you that you draw a lot of strength from either in person or even pa that have passed away or, or things like that? Oh, my gosh. I You know, I'm not I'm not sure. I do find a lot of uh, I find political figures uh, quite inspiring, you know, specifically ones that might have like degrees in law or special finance. I find people who are really, really smart, um, inspirational, whether that be people on Twitter or people, you know, young people in political, um, office and stuff like that. Um, I would say, I, I can't even think like, I mean, I'll go ahead and say AOC is one that I think is just really inspiring. Um, particularly because she's younger than me. And I do feel like she's a, been able to do quite a bit and really have has made some contributions to even just the ideas of modern day society. You mentioned fear and anxieties a while back. And obviously you're doing a lot of, or when you're going for auditions and whatnot, how do you deal with the pushbacks or the failures? And do you have a process to take that on board and, and bounce back? How, what have you developed over time for that? 
I've developed really weird coping mechanisms. <laughs> like um, one is to actually admit that it sucks. Um, often <laughs> too many people are like, oh, I, you know, like an audition is just a free class. And I'm like, that's bullshit. That's not even true. Like, you know, you know, like, or just have fun. That's one of my least favorite things that people say when you go to an audition or, you know, just have fun. Uh, what? No, I'm like doing this for a job. Like auditions aren't fun. Not, not to me. And, uh, so the first step for me is to admit what it really is and how I really feel about it. Um, the second step is usually like, I have to tell myself that I can't lose anything that I don't have. Right. If I have too much pressure on myself about something, it, it will ruin me. So I have to kind of like almost relinquish myself of having the thing so that I don't feel like I would lose something or that I have too much at stake. And then the third thing is um, if I don't book the job or the opportunity doesn't come through, I lie to myself. This is like really weird. I lie to myself and I'm like, well, they just, the job must've never happened. And then even when I see the job on TV, I might be like, oh, they must've made a mistake. Like I'm sure they wanted to hire me and I just, my picture must've gotten lost. And that is like a really <laughs> psychotic way to deal with rejection, but it seems to have worked okay for me thus far. <laughs> hmm, interesting. I haven't heard of that one before. And is that something you just developed <laughs> yourself or, or have you kind of taken inspiration from somebody else on that one? Uh, I, I think I came up with it myself and it's kind of like a little embarrassing to share that one. It's, and it's not, I just want to clarify, it's not from a place of thinking I'm that good. It mm. is 100% a place of protecting my own like feelings. Of course. Oh, it's, a, it's a good way of blocking it out as well. Like so. <laughs> Or I'll be like, I'll follow it up with like, oh, they made such a mistake. I would have really, you know, like they really needed me on that job. Like they made a mistake. Like I could have helped them so much, you know. <laughs> like, oh, that's, that's funny. <laughs> Goals and kind of setting targets for yourself. Is that something you do well? Do you have any approaches for that? Yeah, I'm really good at setting goals. I say, I think I'm fairly good at meeting them. I think more than anything else that I can be a bit unrealistic and a bit um, over optimistic. Yes. And also like really um, over like having too high of expectations. Like they say that expectations are premeditated resentments, right? Like you, you set your expectations to a level that you, you know, not, it's just would be so rare for it to, to happen that then you're resentful. And that happens to me a lot. Um, and so I have to really manage my expectations with things because I'm kind of like I suffer from what I would call like destination disease. Like when I get there and do this thing, mm -hmm. like everything will be and then I will be done and I'll be like, yeah. I don't even know what that is. It's just like this very weird feeling of like when I get to the destination, I'll have arrived and everything will be easy. And that's just not life. And that's not life on life's terms. Yet I am always disappointed when I finish something and I haven't arrived. <laughs> so that is in the goal making, in the goal attaining is not necessarily where I have my difficulties. It's more in the expectations and obviously the uh, over expectation of like, like you had said, you had said like too high of expectations for what the actual goal is or unreasonable. Yeah. Unrealistic. Maybe I'm actually, I'm reading a book at the moment. Uh, it's called the paradox of choice. And 
I'm actually interviewing the author of it next week, which I'm excited about because this guy has like 20 million views on, 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 on TED Talks and whatnot. But, but he goes into all the science around choice and setting expectations. And I think that the key takeaway, as he says, is just how, set yourself with lower expectations and you will be happier mm. in general. Um, because, 100%. Mm. Like that sounds like music to my ears. And like I definitely could do that. I could do that. And that would actually really take the pressure off. Um, what's her name? Elizabeth Gilbert has a book, Big Magic. And a lot of her stuff that she's talked about over the years is like, uh, you know, like taking your art and putting it on something else, like believing in a, in a fairy or a genie or like a little like magical creative force um, so that it you don't take it on as, you know, attached to you so that when you you know, fail, it's not your fault. And when you succeed, it's not your fault. You know, you, it just brings it to this very like base, median, non-expectant level that like frees you a bit. Mm -hmm. So like that book that you're talking about sounds incredibly helpful for someone like me. <laughs> yeah, I'll, uh, I'll send you a link to it. On, uh, that Amazon. might be 15% better, not just 1%. Well, that, that might be like compounded that's the sequel to this podcast uh yeah. the 15 percent better one i'm sure somebody else has that one nailed already um no de definitely you mentioned books and I'm, i love getting recommendations from the guests around books um so is there any other ones that that has had a, an impact a, a big one on you over over the years that you'd like to share Big Magic I just finished not too long ago. That one was absolutely great by Elizabeth Gilbert. I also enjoyed The Power of Habit, um, oh, which brilliant. was a bestseller, and I can't remember Charles, who wrote it. Charles yes, Duhigg. Okay. I have, I have so it. You know. I've, I've like been talking about that one for a long time. Uh, yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah. It's really good. And then there's another one called Choose Yourself by, I believe it's James um, L... Chewer, A-L-T-U-C-H-E-R. Choose oh, yes. Yourself, James Altchewer. I heard of him, yeah. Okay, Okay. so that book I read twice, and he's been a millionaire a couple times over, and he talks about, um, basically, he talked about something that I believe wholeheartedly has been an issue for our civilization and will continue to be, which is like, you know, when you're looking at jobs and professions and things to do, if a computer could do your job in the next five, 10 years, like that's going to be a problem. Mm -hmm. So choose things that are trades, choose things that are arts, choose things that are more human connection focused, something that AI or a machine would not be able to do. And he talks about a lot of that in the book and it's really um, an easy read. He's very like comedic when he talks in the book and, or as he writes it, mm. that's a great one. Cool. I would say those three are pretty good. That's, that's brilliant. I have a, a book recommendation page on the website, so I'll put a, a couple of them up there for, for sure. Gillian, I guess maybe one more just before we wrap up. And I, I, again, it's a, it's one of those cliche questions, but it's always interesting to hear different people's perspectives. Advice. Is there advice that you've been given or advice that you would give um, that, that comes up when uh, when you hear that question? Hmm. Get the money up front. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I say that to all my students every time they have a question. Jill, I have a question. Get the money up front. Um, I mean, I guess I'll go with Joseph Campbell. Um, I think I think he was the one who said, "Follow your bliss." I think that's that would probably be the one. Cool, nice one to uh, to potentially end it with. I think, Jillian. How can folks find out more about you online, and if they want to, certainly in the 
the Hollywood, California area if they want to reach out? Yes, my website, www.jilliannschmitz.com. Jillianschmitz.com. I'm on uh, Instagram under Jillian Schmitz. And through Instagram, I have my link tree. You can find all of any current event stuff I'm doing, plus my website. Now my website has links to everything or it's a one stop for everything that I'm involved in. And obviously a basic Google search, you'd be able to find it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, brilliant. I'll, I'll definitely share a lot of that and exciting times with the the male burlesque show. Hopefully yes. that is something that continues to grow and, and develop and prosper there. So, so definitely good luck with that. The one last question actually that I forgot to, to mention when I was doing a, a run through of your resume, I did notice in movies you were had a credit in Ted Two and Tropic Thunder. What, what was what, what what did you ha- what did you do in either of those? So in Tropic Thunder, there's a scene where they celebrate. They have a wrap party for their first week of filming, hmm. um, and they have this big extravagant one week down wrap party. And um, I don't know if it actually stayed in the full version. I know it's in the director's cut this big party that they have and they have dancers like, you know, in this party and me and another dancer on top of these helicopter rotors doing choreography and dancing around poles on top of the helicopter rotors for Tropic Thunder. So that was that job. We were in Hawaii for a week to shoot just that scene. We went, we had to interview or audition for it. It was a very big job. We made great money and we still make residuals on it. And it was such a little blip in the, in the actual uh, film. I don't even know if it made it the full uh, uh, episode. And then uh, Ted 2, it's the scene, I believe it's towards the beginning where there's 80 couples, uh, Fred and Ginger type couples. Um, and it's just giant movie musical, white dress, you know, sweeping scene. And um, that was also a job that you had to audition for. We had a week long rehearsals. That shoot day was incredibly long. We almost had to reshoot a second day. It was a very long, a very painful day. Um, it was, yeah, our bodies were broken after that day. Uh, I remember that being one of the tougher jobs I had done as far as, um, exertion on, on the body. Um, but it's a beautiful scene and, uh, yeah, it was, a. Uh, it was um, quite an experience, that one. Cool. Yeah, look, very interesting, broad range of exposure to different industries, different parts of the entertainment world. So very cool to hear your uh, your story. Gillian, it was lovely to talk to you. Uh, thanks for, for sharing it. And you did say ha- beforehand you had a bit of a sailor's mouth. I, I think you kept it quite clean, to be <laughs> I honest. Did. So. I did. I'm proud of myself. I really <laughs> kept it together. Maybe I had a good influence there. I don't know. Yeah, so all right brilliant Gillian thanks so much look forward to putting this one out and best of luck in the future great thank you so much Rob take care so this is the outro of the podcast guys you got to the end and that is great please hang in here for another couple of minutes I know most people won't but maybe there's something here of interest so check this out first off thanks so much for listening to this one as well as maybe the hundred or so that's gone before it why not check them out if you haven't already there's lots of good stuff in there the whole podcasting journey for me has been a huge learning and i'm trying to help you guys learn and improve as well so much has changed over the last few years since i started it i've really realized lots of the goals that i put out there and then realized so many unexpected benefits as well and i think anytime you take on action 
towards a goal, you're going to pick up lots of things that you didn't expect along the way. And hopefully they're good things. In this particular episode, was there any one or two things that jumped out? Maybe you could take a pen and paper out right now, because this is something that you might think of during the episode but never do. Do it now. Take it out. Write down a goal that you're going to set yourself as a result of something you learned from this episode. Put a plan in place and then work towards it, applying yourself deliberately over time. Take ownership, build a habit, improve, get 1% better, share accountability with somebody you know in a buddy system and learn and grow and improve. That's what it's all about. That's my hopefully inspirational piece done other areas to note check out the website robofthegreen.ie you can consume everything there for free there is obviously the podcast there's video one minute monday clips there's articles Uh, not enough but i'd like to put more there if you're interested in putting one there let me know and there's a get better at page which i'm starting to add new content to over time there's a feedback page if you want to email me rob at rob of the instead but it's all about trying to engage you and get you to a place of improvement so i'm open to feedback as i said ways you can help me is by following me on the socials at rob of the is the website or at rob of the green on all the social platforms subscribe to the podcast on any of the apps that you might listen to it on talk about it tell a friend about it tell your family members about it share some of the ideas not only to your friends but to me is there anything i can improve upon sign up to the newsletter that's there as well i'm experimenting again with a group called slack rob of the green on slack this is really for a shared accountability environment and sharing ideas you can sign up to that on the website as well all of this is obviously all free but there is also an option where you could subscribe to my patreon site and make a small donation for the content that we do it's there it's totally up to you everything that is coming in through that or could come in through that will go into making the podcast better so to close i am always trying to improve and get better change is difficult i know that but it's all about taking the first step learning something applying yourself moving forward you can do this i've been able to improve pushing myself outside the comfort zone learning and i think if i can do it so can you don't overreach don't set yourself unrealistic goals one percent at a time is enough but it's all about starting and that will bring you on your pursuit of betterness to a great place. Thanks for sticking to the very end. Talk to you next time and take care. Good luck.